I'm Chief Zookeeper Chris Lintot, and you're listening to The Jodcast. Like doing science with Galaxy Zoo, but much less effort. The Jodcast. Because if you do anything twice, it's traditional. With Megan Argo, David Alt, Jen Gupta, Ian Morrison, and Mark Perver. The Jodcast. July 2011 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. And yes, it's me, it's David here again. And today I'm joined by Jen. Hi, Jen. Hello, Dave. It's so good to have you back. Well, it's a July issue, so it's it's important that it's just us two that do, that do this one. Aww. And this time we're not in Milan. Or in America. No. Where are we, Dave? Uh, we are in Iceland. <laughs> no, we're not, unfortunately. I wish we were. No. Well, yesterday we both were in Nottingham, which yes. is it's it's sort of abroad from Manchester and Birmingham, but where we usually are. But that's um, where we are now. Y- yeah. Yes. Um, if you're going on a technicality, then yes, that's where we are. Oh, sorry, everyone. Um, we couldn't get to a foreign country this year, unfortunately. Yeah, we I, 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 we were trying to go to... Well, you guys did go to Wales. We went to Cardiff, and I was really hoping that Dave would come and join us, and then we could record in Wales, which is like another country, kind of. Well, it is another country. Yeah, but you don't need your passport to go there. That's true. Should we get on with the show? I think we should. So, um, one thing that the other guys forgot to mention in the last show was that Professor Richard Davis has got an OBE for, for his services to science, which is a fantastic honour, and so congratulations to him. Uh, Richard was actually, a, he took part in our 1990 April Fool a couple of years ago, if any. Oh, yes, I remember that. Yeah. I say a couple of years ago, that was last year, wasn't it? It was last year, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I, before we start the show, I'd also like to give a shout out to Daniel Messias and Emily Martin. Um, so for the last two weeks, I've been doing this event called I'm a Scientist, Get Me Out of Here, which is an online thing where scientists and school pupils get to interact over the internet. And Daniel and Emily were in my zone in I'm a Scientist, Get Me Out of Here, and in one of the chats they asked if I could say hi to them because they'd been listening. I'd also like to say congratulations to Evan of Jodcast fame for winning his zone, and I won my zone, and it's all exciting. Yes, Woo! Massive congratulations to you, our very own Jen Gupta, Yay! winning the Cobalt Zone, so well done. And what do you get other than fame and possibly glory. not very much fortune and glory? Um, I, the winners get £500 to spend on science communications, so I'm hopefully going to go and visit all the schools in my zone. That's um, brilliant. Go and talk to them about science and hopefully make some podcasts. So, yay! Yay! Ooh, hello, everyone! Jodcast Jod live with schools. Yeah. Ah, brilliant. Well, also in the show this time, we've got an interview about exoplanets, and we find out what you can see in the July night sky. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, Supernova 1987A begins a new phase, and a new class of luminous supernova. When a massive star runs out of fuel in its core, it explodes violently as a supernova, releasing a vast amount of energy and briefly becoming bright enough to be visible from other galaxies. Over several weeks or months, the light from such an explosion gradually fades from view as the expanding shell of debris expands, forming a supernova remnant. The nearest supernova to have been observed in the last few hundred years was spotted in the Large Magellanic Cloud, 
a dwarf satellite galaxy of the Milky Way, in 1987. Known as Supernova 1987A, the explosion was bright enough to be seen without a telescope. Because this event happened so close in cosmic terms, it has been extensively studied over the last 24 years since the explosion, making this one of the best-studied supernovae to date. Now, for the first time, the transition between two phases of supernova remnant evolution has been directly observed. In the early stages of the expansion of the shell of debris, the light emitted comes mainly from the decay of certain radioactive nuclei created in the explosion itself, mainly nickel-56, nickel-57 and titanium-44. These nuclei are unstable and undergo a transformation to more stable nuclei in a process which releases energy. For a sample of any particular radioactive nucleus, the time taken for half of the nuclei in the sample to decay to a more stable form is known as the half-life. Between 1994 and 2001, observations showed that the decline in light detected from supernova 1987A matched what would be expected from the decay of titanium-44 nuclei. However, continued observations showed that the light output from the expanding remnant began to increase after 2001, with the brightness more than doubling by 2009. In a paper published in the journal Nature on the 23rd of June, an international team led by Josephine Larson at Stockholm University show evidence that this recent increase in brightness is due to the remnant entering the next stage of evolution, a transition which has not been directly observed before, since most supernovae are observed in other galaxies and are just too far away. What their analysis suggests is that this increase in brightness is due to the ejector, the expanding shell of debris, beginning to interact with the surrounding material. Surrounding the star before its explosion was the pre-existing interstellar material, a tenuous gas which exists between the stars, as well as the gas shed from the star itself in a stellar wind, but also a denser ring of material ejected from the star some 20,000 years before the final catastrophic explosion. Now, 24 years after the explosion was observed, astronomers are watching the outer parts of the ejector starting to interact with this denser ring of material. This interaction is causing the ring to brighten across the entire electromagnetic spectrum, and this increase in brightness shows that there must be a new source of energy, other than just radioactive decay. Larson and her colleagues show that the most likely explanation for this brightening is the heating caused by X-rays which are being produced in the collision of the expanding ejector with the 20,000-year-old ring of stellar material. This is the first time the transition from supernova to supernova remnant has directly been observed, and the researchers suggest that this ongoing transition may reveal more about the structure and chemistry of the progenitor star as the collision moves further into the circumstellar ring. Many hundreds of supernova events are detected each year, both by professional and amateur astronomers. In all known supernovae, the radiation we see comes from energy deposited in the outflowing ejected material by either radioactive decay of elements created in the explosion, heat deposited by the explosion shock in the envelope of the progenitor star, or in the interaction between the debris and slowly moving hydrogen-rich circumstellar material ejected by the star prior to the explosion. But in the same issue of Nature, Robert Quimby and colleagues from the Palomar Transient Factory report observations of a new class of luminous supernovae whose properties cannot be explained by any of these processes. The Palomar Transient Factory, or PTF, is a fully automated wide-field survey of the sky, searching for supernovae and other more exotic transient events. As of today, the project has discovered 1,207 supernovae since it began searching in 2009. Most of these fit with existing models of supernovae explosions, but this new class of supernova contains four newly discovered events from the PTF survey and two previously unexplained highly luminous supernovae. These events are about ten times brighter than any known thermonuclear supernova and are bright in ultraviolet light for an unusually long period of time. 
the light fades at a rate which is inconsistent with the amount of radioactive elements created in the explosion, and the results from the six supernovae so far discovered suggest that the observed light is emitted by hydrogen-free material distributed over a large radius some 10 billion kilometres, and expanding at high speeds, faster than 10,000 kilometres per second. Since most stars are made up of mostly hydrogen, this means that these stars must have lost their outer layers some time before the final explosion. Taken together, the properties of these six events do not match any existing class of supernova. Any suggested mechanism for these events must explain the large amount of energy deposited in hydrogen-poor, rapidly expanding material. Two such explanations are proposed by the authors. The first is the explosion of an extremely massive star. Stars with initial masses of between 90 and 130 times that of the Sun are thought to undergo massive pulsations, driving off outer layers of stellar material at high speeds. Such stars evolve quickly, and would soon use up their hydrogen, resulting in a core collapse supernova with a surrounding hydrogen-poor environment. The second suggestion is that the peak luminosity could be explained by the energy output from a compact spinning object such as a magnetar. Whatever the cause, these long-lived and luminous events make them excellent targets for high-redshift studies, since they can be seen at great distances. As they light up their surroundings, they could be used to probe star-forming regions and primitive galaxies in the distant universe. And finally, there are a couple of near misses this month, both on Earth and off it. On June 27th, an asteroid the size of a small house came within 20,000 kilometres of the Earth. While this may sound like a long way, it is only about one-twentieth of the distance between the Earth and the Moon, close enough to be inside the orbit of some high-altitude communication satellites. Asteroid 2011MD was only discovered on June 22nd, just five days before closest approach, by Linear, a pair of robotic telescopes in New Mexico, which search the skies for such objects. Luckily for us, even if 2011MD had entered the atmosphere, it would have burned up in a spectacular fireball rather than causing the kind of destruction often seen in apocalyptic science fiction movies. Only a day later, the crew of the International Space Station had to evacuate the spacecraft due to a passing piece of debris, which was only spotted 14 hours before closest approach. The unidentified object was large enough to cause serious damage to the station, currently home to six astronauts, but was spotted too late for the normal avoidance manoeuvres to be made, prompting the crew to take shelter in the attached Soyuz spacecraft as a precautionary measure. Luckily, the object passed within a few hundred metres of the station, and within minutes the six-man crew were safely back at work. Thanks for that, Megan. And it's strange, after six months of not being on the Jodcast, the the simple things are are what's most pleasing. (laughs) Just to be able to say, but first, before all of that, here's the news with it. It's, It's great. Oh, I you're like so sweet. That. I know, I know. <sighs> anyway, so, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> for our interview this time, Jen and Mark spoke to Giovanna Tinetti about exoplanets. We're here today with Dr. Giovanna Tinetti from University College London. Thank you for joining us on the Jogcast. Hello. Uh, And you've been giving a talk today entitled Exploring Exosolar Worlds. So before we get into your research, um, could we start off with a little recap of what we know about planets around other stars, how many we have, how we find them, things like that? Absolutely. So first of all, an exosolar planet is a planet that is orbiting a star different from our own sun. And today uh, we're already counting more than 538 planets. So we should um, say today is the end of March 2011, because that number goes up and down, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's mostly going up, actually. It's increasing quite exponentially. 
So yes, up today we can count more than 538. But the Kepler space mission uh, has provided um, already 1,200 unconfirmed uh, planetary candidates, and so in the next few months and years, presumably, this 500 plus number will actually increase uh, very rapidly. And so what are the methods that we use to find these planets? You mentioned Kepler. What, how does that find planets? There are several methods that have been uh, used, actually, by the community to find new planets. Um, radio velocity is one of them. Uh, radio velocity and astronomy, they're both looking at the wobble uh, of the star. Because uh, when, uh, when we say a planet is orbiting a particular star, in, uh, in truth, is actually the system, the star on the planet, are both orbiting their central mass. And so when the planet is relatively passive, will induce a little bit of wobbling in the star as well. And so that wobbling can be detected through radio velocity, so basically uh, using some Doppler shift of the light when the star is getting, is a, a little bit approaching, uh, the observer, or he's going a little bit far away from the observer. Um, or with astronomy, uh, astrometry, uh, you can basically uh, measure the different position uh, in the uh, plane that is perpendicular to the observer. And so these two methods are sort of complementary in measuring this wobbling of the star due to the presence of the planet. Uh, then another method that is also very interesting is the microlensing uh, that is more relying on the fact that uh, uh, light is actually uh, can bend because of the gravity. So if we have a star that is really far away from the observer, from us, uh, and another star with, with some planets is passing in between, uh, we will have a temporary magnification of the light of the star that is uh, very far away and when there is a planet uh, then uh, um, uh, the, the, the kind of information uh, the kind of uh, um, amplification uh, is slightly distorted and through that distortion we can uh, um, work out the parameters of the star and the planet together. Then we have direct detection um, with direct detection, we're trying to basically null out the contribution of the star and focus on the planet alone. And this can be done uh, through different type of techniques. Uh, and at the moment, uh, is, is, is certainly a method that uh, is getting more and more interesting result. Um, and finally, uh, the transit method, which is actually the one used by Kepler, uh, is basically uh, detecting a planet when a planet is uh, passing in front of the star. And so through that uh, passage, we can uh, basically measure the relatively size of the planet and the star um, and uh, uh, measure very precisely the decreasing of the sterile flux. Uh, again, when the, uh, the planet is sort of creating a sort of shadow to the, to the star. So in the transit method, the light from the star dips when the planet goes in front of it. Do you also see anything when the planet goes behind the star? Yes, um, very good question, actually. Um, what I just described is what we call primary transit method. But uh, if we wait for the planet to be hidden by the star, 
then we can get a complementary information to the primary transit. And in particular, if we measure the star and the planet together, and then we wait for the planet to go behind the star, we can subtract out the contribution of the star. And so the final result is basically the light coming from the planet itself. So is that not the reflected light, but actually emitted light from the planet? Uh, to be entirely precise, it depends on the wavelength uh, uh, you're looking at. So what, um, in what interval of the spectrum you're looking at uh, and you're doing your observation. If you do your measurement more in the visible part of the spectrum, which is uh, basically the part of the spectrum, part of light to which our own eye is sensitive to, uh, then you will look at uh, light that is reflected by the planet. But uh, if, on the contrary, you're doing your observation in the infrared, so the, the type of light that is more measuring the, the, the thermal um, property of the planet, then we, we talk uh, um, of uh, emission spectrum. And the transit method of detecting planets seems to have been very fruitful recently. And it's quite interesting that the types of telescopes that you need to do this don't seem to have to be they don't seem to have to have very large mirrors um, it's more about having a good camera on the back of it so that uh, make it easier to use that method to detect planets well certainly one of the reasons why transit method has been so successful is that you don't require it as you're saying um, a huge telescope with a very sophisticated type of equipment just to give you um, an idea uh, you can basically uh, detect a, a transiting planet from, for instance, the Observatory uh, of London. We're talking about uh, an amatorial uh, type of telescope, so 50 centimeter type of telescope. Um, and, uh, I mean, clearly the London weather is not the best suited <laughs> for this kind of observation. But since uh, for detecting a planetary transit, you just need to... to um, detect 1% of the light of your star, that can really be done even with very, very small telescope and even with local type of telescope, so even from the UK, very easily. So with the transit method, I guess you're not sensitive to planets like the Earth, because if you think about the Earth taking 365 days to go around the Sun, if someone was on another planet looking at us, the amount of time we spent in front of the Sun wouldn't be very long. So what kind of planets do you find with this method? Um, when I was talking about 1%, uh, I should have been a bit, bit more precise. 1% is roughly uh, the number you would get for a planet that is more or less as big as Jupiter and a star that is more or less as big as our own sun. But, you know, not all stars have the same size. There are stars out there that are much smaller than our own sun or much bigger. And so, depending on that, you might be able actually to detect planets which are smaller than Jupiter, and so more type of terrestrial planet, um, or Neptune type of planet. Um, and you can do that uh, um, relatively easily, depending on what type of star you're selecting. Um, as you pointed out, though, if a planet is very distant uh, to the star, so it's very far away from the star. I, I don't want to say it's impossible to detect a transit, but it's impractical. Because if you have, for instance, to wait one year before you, sell, before you detect another 
transit and it's clearly a bit impractical. But um, uh, most of the planets are actually detected with this method are um, located very close to the star. And so either they're very, very hot planet, or if the star is much colder than our own sun, then uh, although they are closer, they might maintain a temperature that is uh, a bit milder, so not necessarily some extreme cases. It seems like you're sort of playing a statistics game when you try and detect them, in that presumably most of the stars that you look at don't show signs of a uh, planet transiting across them, but you just reckon to look at enough enough stars to be lucky. What sort of fraction of stars that are monitored actually show a transiting planet? Uh, well, actually, the statistics that the Kepler mission is, is showing us, it's quite mind-blowing because uh, um, detecting um, 1,200 1, candidates in such a little time it means that it's it. They're giving us the information that uh, exoplanets are very common, uh, and this is a kind of statistic that is certainly um, confirmed by our technique, by radio velocity or microlensing. Um, so, although uh, roughly we can say that uh, among all the possible orbits, uh, just two percent. Uh, uh, of the planet uh, that are present around the star are really transiting. Uh, still, if most of the star have at least one planet, you can do your maths, and it turns out that then it's not so difficult then to uh, to discover some of this transiting one. Um, and again, I, I guess that uh, in in the next few years, uh, um, service from the ground and Kepler will tell us even more about this kind of statistics. So you've alluded slightly to your research. We were talking about um, how you could get information about the atmosphere from a planet by the secondary transit. So can we go into a bit more detail about that? Um, yes, of course. Um, it's, it's, it's very, very interesting to know how many planets are out there and understanding how this kind of statistics will be improved by this different technique in the future. But um, personally, I am more biased towards the understanding of the properties of the planet rather than finding new ones. Um, so what I'm personally very interested in is uh, trying to understand the chemical properties or the thermal properties of this planet and so having a better idea of how they formed, uh, how they really look like, how they will evolve. Uh, and so trying to put basically the planet in a own solar system in a in a broader context. Um, so in order to do that, uh, you, uh, detecting the planet is not enough. You need to go a little bit more in detail. Uh, and transit method is actually very, very good in telling us more about satisfiable words. And the idea here is uh, you want to repeat the same type of observation at different wavelengths, so primary transit or secondary eclipse. And by repeating it at different wavelengths, you can basically measure really a spectrum of the planet. And a spectrum tell us a lot. Um, in particular, we can infer the, uh, the molecules that are absorbing in that particular atmosphere, because every molecule has its own spectral signature. And so by, by looking at uh, a spectrum 
uh, emitted or reflected or transmitted by an exosolar planet, we can really work out the, the chemical composition. We can uh, um, basically infer also some of the thermal properties if we're looking at this planet in the infrared. Um, and so all this information uh, constrains some of our models and so, some of our understanding of these uh, um, very, sometimes very strange type of objects. So you spoke about spectroscopy and photometry during your talk, and the difference between them might be a little bit subtle. So could you tell us what the difference is and what you find out from the two different methods? Uh, of course. Well... It's somehow is uh, photometry and spectroscopy. The only difference is that in a spectrum, it's like you're having a lot of photometric measurement, uh, but with very narrow band. And so, um, when you look uh, at a particular planet uh, in a in a spectral interval that is uh, relatively broad, and so you you collect all the light in that relatively broad interval then you, you're having a photometric measurement. So that's the intensity as a function of frequency, but with quite a, as you say, broad bins of, of frequency. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a very big bin, yeah. and most of the time you just have one bin, and that's it. But ideally, you want to have multiple bins, because ideally you want to have a differential measurement. And so... Um, uh, if you're able to have multiple beans and hopefully not very large type of uh, bean but more narrow, then you can have what we call a spectrum. So it's, it's a repetition of photometric measurement um, uh, and uh, hopefully the band uh, is, is not really very large but uh, relatively narrow. And then you're catching the particular wavelengths of light that come out in a very narrow band from specific molecules and you can match that up I suppose to what we know in from lab measurements of what those molecules do. Yeah absolutely well clearly depending on what kind of molecule you want to detect the kind of um, what we call spectral resolution so the kind of binning that you need would be different. For the relatively, for the main molecules, uh, especially if, if this one had, uh, have broad signal throughout the spectrum, like for instance water vapor or methane, you usually don't need a, a very high spectral resolution. Uh, you can get away with uh, few photometric uh, bands, uh, at least just to say it's there. Um, Clearly, if you want to know a bit more, like what is the abundance, uh, uh, or try to find out a uh, um, uh, weaker type of signature on so molecule that uh, are not so abundant in the spectrum or for which the signature is, is weaker, then clearly you need to have a higher resolution type of spectrum. So the higher is the spectral resolution, um, the more photos, the more lights uh, you need to be able to collect clearly so more difficult is your observation and uh, presumably the more sophisticated is the kind of uh, uh, answer that you can uh, have. So a lot of people when you talk about hot Jupiter planets for example you kind of think they're all the same but in your talk you, you drew an analogy with how the Earth and Venus might be at similar distances from the Sun might look similar but actually have very different 
um, chemical compositions in their atmospheres. So do you see a range of um, molecules and elements in these atmospheres or do you see the same or are you only looking for specific molecules so you might not find the weird ones that you might not expect? Well, I certainly expect a lot of variety, even in the class of what we call hot Jupiter, so this Gastrian planet orbiting very close to the star. I expect that because, uh, for instance, if you if you change the type of star, um, the spectrum from the star, so the um, the, the light that is uh, uh, detected from the star at different wavelengths will change, and presumably because of that, the type of photochemistry that can be uh, that can occur on the planet will definitely change with different. Uh, stellar type. So a G type of star like our own sun um, clearly will um, will radiate a planet in a very different way from which, for instance, an M dwarf is a, a star that is much smaller than our own sun and colder will presumably irradiate the planet. I mean, M dwarf are expected, for instance, to be quite active, especially in the X-ray. So clearly the type of radiation will be very different. So why I should think that the photochemistry is the same for planets that are actually uh, orbiting different type of star. I certainly expect not. Uh, then, even a slight difference in the distance might um, cause a slight difference in temperature. And also in that case, for the thermal structure uh, or for the, for the uh, uh, thermal chemistry, that might clearly create a change in the overall uh, atmospheric situation, um, and um, also the um, the process of formation of the planet, presumably in the outer region of the planetary system, and then uh, the migration, um, possibly um, might be different depending on different planets or the evolution. If you're looking, for instance, uh, at different stages of the history of this planet, uh, unfortunately. Most of the time, we don't really know even the age of the star. Uh, but clearly, if we look at the early Earth, uh, it would have been very different from the Earth that we uh, see today. And so it's probably the same situation for exosolar planets. So all this put together uh, tells me and uh, so my colleague that, I mean, we're certainly expecting a huge variety out there. Now, clearly, with the... Uh, type of observation we're doing today, we are not most of the time extremely sensitive to all these variations. So um, um, it's sure that with future observation and uh, improving the accuracy, we might be able to perceive these, these differences. Today is, is still a little bit difficult, but we're already seeing a few of them. So, uh, What kind of atmospheres have you seen up to now or have uh, people found? Well, clearly we're starting much more with these hot Jupiters because these are the most favorable planets to detect, but also to characterize. They're hot, they are very bright, they are very big, and so uh, all the possible conditions for a good observation. Um, but then uh, the difficulty uh, and the challenges, um, um, even in... Even if they're increasing with uh, smaller planet and colder planet, uh, still people address uh, the case of the warm Neptunes. So uh, planets as big as Neptune and uh, with an atmosphere that is roughly 600 Kelvin. So again, something that is very 
uh, is much colder than these hot Jupiters. Um, and I would say at the moment uh, there is this uh, what we call super Earth, um, a large terrestrial planet with a mass that is roughly five Earth masses. It's called the GJ 1214b. Um, and this particular object uh, that has a temperature that is roughly uh, 400 Kelvin, so again, colder and smaller, uh, has been indeed measured by several teams and telescopes. So we're already touching the area of a large terrestrial planet and uh, not temperate condition, but still not so hot either. So what molecules do you detect? Well, for hot Jupiters, um, water vapour, methane, CO2 and CO are believed to be there because uh, multiple planets, a team and uh, instruments were recording similar situations. So, so all think... sort of things that we find in the Earth's atmosphere? Yes, <laughs> although the main difference is that uh, the main molecular component of these hot Jupiters is hydrogen. So um, um, all these molecules are are clearly present in a very different environment, and especially the temperature is, is at least 1,000 Kelvin, so it's much, much hotter. But you're right. Um, I mean, these are the sort of ingredients that we can find in the Earth's atmosphere as well. Um, for the warm Neptune, we believe then, uh, presumably methane is the main component after hydrogen. And for the super Earth, uh, is, uh, is, is is still a bit... Um, um, unknown, I would say, because uh, although a lot of observations were recorded, these are not conclusive yet, so it, it's it's hard to say today exactly what is in, but uh, I would say in one, year, in one year or so we should be able to to put more constraint in that type of environment. We should probably say um, that Kelvin is a measure of temperature and that zero degrees centigrade is 273 and a little bit, yeah. So yes. Earth temperatures are roughly around 300 Kelvin or so. Yeah. So when we talk about cool being 600 Kelvin, that's quite quite hot compared to uh, anything that occurs on the Earth. But with these hot Jupiters, you're talking about well in excess of oven kind of temperatures, aren't you, with a thousand? Yeah, Kelvin. you're right. So clearly everything is relative, and uh, what we say not so hot at the moment are still the temperature at least of Venus. So clearly not very habitable type of environment, but but still, as you're pointing out, the thermometer uh, has gone down from 1,000 Celsius more or less uh, down to 500 or so, and so clearly we can see a shift towards the more temperate type of uh, conditions. Well, one thing that certainly captured my imagination in your talk, which I had really not thought about before, was the possibility of detecting moons around planets around other stars. Um, could you tell us how you might go about finding them? Absolutely. Yes, this is a very exciting topic. And um, uh, in particular, um, a person that really has devoted a lot of effort into that is my students David Keeping right now. I shouldn't call it students anymore because he uh, um, has a PhD and he's in Harvard. But he certainly put a lot of efforts during the past three years in, in trying to uh, work out a method to detect uh, moons uh, uh, orbiting exosolar planets. Um, 
And uh, he worked out basically this method, uh, having the numbers from the Kepler mission, which is a clearly a very interesting mission, able to uh, provide um, a very accurate type of result uh, through transit uh, measurements. Um, and basically here the idea is if a planet has a moon, uh, then the moon and the planet will orbit their own central mass, a little bit like radio velocity type of situation. Um, and so the planet will wobble a little bit because of the presence of the moon. And this wobbling can be detected uh, if the planet is transiting. Because if it's transiting, then you should be able to detect few changes in the duration uh, of your transit uh, or in in the... Uh, and the real timing of this uh, transit. So, although we're talking a very, very little number, um, little numbers, um, Kepler should be able to do that. And so, right now, he and a lot of our people at this point uh, are working with Kepler data to try to detect uh, moons uh, around uh, exoplanets. So, it's certainly quite... Uh, mind-blowing <laughs> so you don't get a transit of a transit or anything like that it's that the wobble in the position means that if you see consecutive transits they'll be slightly different if you put them on top of each other that's correct because he worked out the transit of the transit and that's too small okay <laughs> and also detecting the moon through radio velocity also the numbers of reach is more for nowadays telescope so the only really way to detect it today is to work out this this wobbling and this uh, variation in the transit timing uh, of the main planet so have you actually found any yet Mm, not that I know. <laughs> but clearly it would be a huge discovery. If there was actually a binary planet, is that something that could exist close enough to transit around? Is that something that could exist close enough to have observable transits and could you then see a kind of double transit signature? Is that possible? Um I, yeah, I would expect so because, I mean, uh, the fact that, for instance, in the Kuiper belt, there are a lot of asteroids that are binary asteroids tells us that, you know, the, the, the two-body situation is probably relatively common. Mm. And so why not thinking of a binary uh, planet? So um, nothing has been detected yet with that, um, uh, in that type of configuration. But uh, I, I would expect that maybe... There are some sort of situation out there. Why not? Sometimes uh, all these extrasolar planets are telling us of realities that are far beyond our imagination. So before we were talking about um, how the Earth's atmosphere has changed over the years, and maybe recently changes in the Earth's atmosphere would be due to life. So, so could you ever find yourself in a situation where you might think there's life on an extrasolar planet by looking at its atmosphere? Um, well, why not? Uh, although it's a very challenging situation, and I'm not entirely sure we are completely prepared for that, it's fair to say that um, uh, if we compare the situation of the early Earth when life was not there, the type of ingredients in the Earth atmosphere were very different from the Earth today. And so, for instance, today we have uh, uh, 21% um, um, of our own atmosphere is is uh, um, is occupied by by oxygen molecular oxygen. Now, twenty one percent of molecular oxygen in atmosphere is completely out of chemical equilibrium because oxygen is a very reactive type of molecule, and so 
uh, without life, so without a constant source of this molecular oxygen, you would expect in a very brief time then the oxygen is just uh, reacting with uh, other type of uh, chemical compounds and just disappear in the form from the form of molecular oxygen. So the fact you have a constant source and the fact you can actually um, um, uh, from remotely detect the presence of molecular oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere make us speculate how about, I don't know, finding a, a similar situation on our planet. Could that situation uh, tell us about so the, uh, the possible presence of life? Um, I think that from a theoretical point of view I don't see any any fault uh, and this entire idea actually was uh, uh, was proposed uh, back back in the 60s uh, by by Lovelock and this uh, British biologist uh, that proposed uh, um, uh, this idea that um, uh, planet uh, if it's inhabited will evolve in a different way from a completely abiotic type of planet and so one side the type of environment is influencing the evolution of life, uh, like Darwin told us. But the other, uh, on the other hand, uh, the life uh, uh, on a planet is able to make some changes of the atmosphere and, uh, um, and on the chemistry that possibly can be detected from uh, with remote sensing, so from very far away. Uh, so why not? Uh, pushing this, this theoretical idea to the exosolar planets and to the detection of life, uh, in other words, uh, is, is from a theoretical point of view quite flawless type of uh, thinking. Um, uh, and I, I really like to speculate in that, that sort of idea, although today clearly we don't have yet example of, of, such, a, of such planets. I'm sure if there was a detection like that, the SETI project would immediately start concentrating on it looking for <laughs> electromagnetic emission. Yeah, although we should separate a bit the two things because what SETI is trying to do is to communicate uh, with our words and so by doing that uh, it's implying that not only there is an inhabited planet uh, but uh, the, 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 the living forms uh, on that planet are civilized enough to to send us uh, and to communicate, to send messages and communicate with us. Uh, honestly, the entirety of Lovelock and uh, what we call today astrobiology uh, is just to look at any form of life. Any form of life will presumably change quite um, noticeably the environment. Um, and so you don't need to have an intelligent life for doing that. So mm. we are less, uh, um, I have to say, selective with respect to SETI. <laughs> <laughs> if you find different elements in different planet atmospheres, does that tell you anything about how those planets formed? Or is it just more an idea of the light that's coming from the star and things like that? If that makes sense. <laughs> it, it does. It clearly does. I mean, uh, trying to understand, first of all, what look the planet like today then the next question is, uh, okay, you're looking at this particular chemistry and, you know, for instance, that after a certain amount of, uh, um, of observation, you can work out how much water vapor you have, how much methane, carbon dioxide, etc., etc. But then the next question is uh, how you got there. Why this planet is uh, uh, 
exactly as you're observing today. And so is it due to the formation process? Is it due to the evolution? Is it due uh, to our processes in between? Uh, and, and clearly these are the kind of questions that we want to address. And the only way to do so is to look at uh, several examples of maybe similar type of planets in the same type of class. Um, and by comparing um, differences and similarities, maybe work out a, um, a, a better big frame, a big picture of what is really going on. So as a last thing, what um, are you hoping for in the way of future telescopes or missions to study extrasolar planets further? Um, well, certainly the idea that we need to have a devoted mission uh, to characterize these extrasolar planets, so to understand the chemistry, the composition, uh, the thermal properties, formation processes, etc., etc. It's certainly not new. Um, when I was uh, um, just out of my PhD and I went to the United States, both in Europe and in the US, uh, there was this uh, um, very stimulating idea of building a very large telescope in space uh, and, uh, um, and use this very challenging technology uh, to really work out uh, uh, all this question and characterize an uh, exosolar planet. Um, and back then we didn't know so many things as we know today. And so I guess uh, most of the scientists uh, started to think that for addressing such a big question you needed to have a, a big and challenging mission. And uh, that idea didn't work in the sense that presumably the technology that was proposed was way too expensive and way too challenging. Um, but we have learned that uh, we have our technique that we can work with and the transit one is actually quite recent. And because of the combination of the use of the transit technique and this very recent uh, observation done with Spitzer Space Telescope or Hubble or ground-based facility, we could work out our way to address the same question, just changing our method, and because of that also change the kind of technology we need. Uh, and so uh, it didn't change the idea uh, to to look at the characterization and, and the understanding of this exosolar planet, what, what it really changed the way we get there. And so today in particular, um, we have a, a mission that is a mission concept that is uh, entirely devoted to this type of characterization of exosolar words. And the mission concept is called ECHO, Exoplanet uh, Characterization Observatory. And ECHO has just been selected by the European Space Agency for an assessment study, which means is it's their way to have a closer look to what we propose and what we think is a sensible, sensible also from a technological point of view, <laughs> mission. And uh, I guess we have about one one year time or less to convince them that it's really worthy. The science is very worthy, and the technology is far from being. Uh, difficult um, and so we really want to convince them that that's the natural next step we want to um, uh, to do uh, to address in a better way the question of characterization of exosolar planets.
So this is one of, I think, four missions that ESA selected. Yes. Only one of them will finally fly, is that right? Well, my my, my understanding is that uh, out of the four in one year time or so, they will probably go down to two. Um, then, I guess, uh, let's see day by day how <laughs> this will work out. I mean, what we need to do, I mean, from a echo point of view is to really make sure that they have all the information and we really work out to, to tell them as best as we can how we want this machine and what is the science that we can do with this machine. And when would it launch? Well, if it is selected, then it will be uh, between 2020 and 2022. So very, very soon from a space point of view. 10 years time is a very, very short time, actually. And what would the instruments focus on? Uh, well, basically, ECHO would be, from a technological point of view, relatively simple. 1.2 meter telescope, which is about the size of Kepler's, slightly bigger, but not that much. Um, and while Kepler is just uh, doing measurement in the visible part of the spectrum, because Kepler is interested in just in detecting them, we want to repeat same type of measurement in spectroscopy and so at different wavelengths from the visible to the infrared and because of this uh, spectroscopic information we can um, basically work out uh, all the information of the chemistry and uh, of the atmospheric properties. Well thank you very much for a very interesting talk and interview. Thanks so much for inviting me here. <laughs> Thanks for that, Jen and Mark. And that leads us nicely onto the bit of the show where we put everything else, the odds and ends section. Yeah, not much for the odds and ends. This is kind of a last-minute show that Dave and I put together, so I've not really been looking around, but I kind of don't want to say this because I feel I'm going to curse it, but the last ever space <laughs> shuttle launch is scheduled for the 8th of July, so that space shuttle Atlantis on STS-135. But the last like two or three space shuttles, when I've announced on the Jobcast that it's coming up, it's been delayed. <laughs> so that's well, what I'm going to say. You, perhaps by saying it's the last ever, you'll, you'll doom it in such a way that they'll have to extend the space shuttle program. Maybe. Or if it will just can... get delayed by bad weather and then... We'll repeat it on the next three job casts and then eventually it will have taken off. <laughs> Brilliant. And talking about Jodrell Bank Live, we do have a gig on the 2nd. So if you're listening before then, if you've downloaded the show, uh, well, what will be on Friday, uh, come and say hi. And if you're listening after then, well, hello. Yes, a few of the job casters are going to be around. Um, we're doing physics busking and asking astronomer sessions and things. So. Um, hopefully we'll have got lots of new listeners from that. So hello, everyone. I hope I met you at the gig and it was really fun and it didn't rain. And you might have met the Jodcast team at the Big Bang East Midlands. Yes. That happened yesterday, as we are recording this, um, over in Nottingham. So hello if we met you there. Yes. Uh, and the Jodcast team did a fantastic uh, load of demonstrations and... Um, Gave out a load of... Oh, you had the sounds from space, didn't you? We did have the sounds from space. And I've got to say, Dave, well done for organising all of that. It was a brilliant day. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you for coming. It was a pleasure. I really appreciated that. Ah, so on to other things that are an absolute pleasure, but these you can have every month. Here is Ian Morrison to tell you what you can see in the night sky in the Northern Hemisphere for July. The night sky for July 2011. 
Well, I suppose the good thing for astronomers is that the nights are getting slightly longer. Actually, one effect of that is that the sky that we see soon after sunset stays sort of the same throughout the late summer and autumn, because as the stars move round a bit earlier by four minutes per day, that's sort of compensated by the fact that uh, sunset gets a little bit earlier. So the same sort of things are visible. But what can we see? Well, the brightest star you'll see in the sky is Arcturus in the constellation of Bootes, and it's the second brightest star in the northern hemisphere, after Sirius, of course. Not a lot actually else in Bootes. Up to the left of Arcturus is a little circlet of stars called Corona Borealis. And over to its left, towards the bright star Vega in Lyra, is the constellation of Hercules. There are four stars at the heart of Hercules. Uh, they make up what is called the keystone because of its shape. And with binoculars or a small telescope, if you work your way up the right-hand side, you'll come across a rather fuzzy little object, which is M13, which is the best globular cluster that we can actually see in the northern heavens. Uh, often overlooked, actually, just above the keystone of Hercules is a second globular cluster called M92, and that's one that actually is also quite nice to look at and can be found more or less by scanning around to the west from Vega. Just mention that below Hercules is actually quite a large constellation, no really very bright stars, it's called Ophiuchus. It so happens that the sun, in its patches around the sky, spends more time, I think, in Ophiuchus than it does in Scorpio. So perhaps it ought to be one of the houses of the ecliptic. But would you want to be an Ophiuchan, I wonder? Well, coming over to the east, fairly high up now, at about 11 o'clock in the middle of the month, we have the beautiful group of constellations, Cygnus the Swan, with Deneb, its brightest star, Lyra with Vega, and Aquila with Altair. Those three bright stars make up what's called the Summer Triangle. And I'll come back to those with one of the highlights later on. And this, just down to the left of Cygnus, across from Altair, is a little... Rather nice little um, trapezium of stars with a couple more making a tail. It's actually Delphinus the dolphin. That looks quite pretty in binoculars too. And just to say that all through the month, the moon is actually really at very low declination. It doesn't rise very high above the horizon. And so we do get this moon illusion that I referred to last month. When you see the moon near the horizon, it does appear to be much larger than when it's high up above us. Right, well, let's have a look at uh, some of the planets. Uh, we'll start with Jupiter. Um, it's a pre-dawn object, as it has been for a while. Uh, but in fact, by the end of July, it rises at midnight. So I suppose you could either get up early or stay up very late. Um, and it'll have an elevation of about 50 degrees at dawn. In fact, Jupiter is actually coming up towards the upper part of the ecliptic. So it'll be relatively high in the sky over the next year or so. And that means it'll be good to observe. Angular size increasing a bit to about 40 arc seconds by the end of the month. And a small telescope will easily show you the equatorial bands and look to see if the south equatorial band has come back. It disappeared for a while last year. And obviously you'll pick out the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. So 
that's something nice to look for. Obviously, as the year progresses, you'll be able to see it in the late evening rather than having to wait up or get up early. Saturn I've got in one of the highlights, but uh, it's still actually visible in the evening sky soon after twilight. Because it's quite bright, if you've got a telescope, you can actually look at it before it gets fully dark, as I did, in fact, on the 19th of, Ju uh, of June, when the seeing conditions were absolutely perfect, and the view I had with my small 4-inch telescope was exquisite. I'll come back to that in one of the highlights, because it's very close to an interesting double star. The rings span about 35 arc seconds, roughly the same sort of size as Jupiter's angular diameter, but the actual disk is only about 17 arc seconds. And again, you will see some markings on the surface if the seeing is good, and also you should easily pick up the little moon Titan at magnitude 8. Even binoculars under very good conditions should pick out Titan. Mercury. Well, it's not really a good month. It's just visible above the northwestern horizon throughout the month, with the magnitude reducing down to about plus 0.7. It reaches its greatest elongation from the Sun, that's when it's furthest away in angle, on the 20th July. But even so, it will only have an elevation of 8 degrees at sunset, so it's not really a good month to observe it. We tend to see it best in the spring and the autumn, when the ecliptic, either at dawn or dusk, makes a nice angle to the horizon, so when it's furthest from the sun, it's actually higher up in the sky. Perhaps have a look to see where the sun sets on the horizon, and then look in the same basic direction about 45 minutes later to hopefully spot Mercury. Well, Mars is a pre-dawn object, but again, the ecliptic's at a fairly shallow angle to the horizon, so it's not terribly high. You want a good low eastern horizon and probably a pair of binoculars to pick it up. Magnitude is at plus 1.4. It's still only about four arc seconds across, which means you're highly unlikely to pick out any details in what's a rather lovely salmon pink disc. It does look quite pretty. Um, it will have an elevation of about 29 degrees at sunrise, and it's moving, in fact, through Taurus, and it's now got, or will get to, very close to the boundary with Gemini. So, something to look for, and I've come back to that at a highlight later on. Now, Venus passes behind the Sun on the 15th of August. Okay, that's next month. But it does mean, in fact, it's getting very close in angle. You might just glimpse it before dawn, low above the horizon in the east-northeast at the beginning of the month. Magnitude is quite bright at minus 3.9. And in fact, if you do spot it with a telescope, you'll see it's a virtually fully illuminated disk, 10 arc seconds across. Well, what about the highlights this month? Well, there's nothing particularly outstanding. We did, of course, last month have a, a total eclipse of the moon, but it was totally cloudy across, I think, virtually the whole of the UK, as these things sometimes happen. Well, I've already mentioned Saturn, but I'd like to make the point that it's actually close to a lovely double star called Porima, or Gamma Virginis. Um, on June the 10th, it was actually only 15 arc minutes away, and uh, it looked lovely in a wide field, um, not that wide field actually, view with a telescope, the two, Saturn and Porima together. But the point is this, that if you have 
a night of good seeing, and in fact, when I observed it on the 19th of June, it was absolutely perfect. Even a small telescope, and mine was only four inches in aperture, will split Porima into two equal doubles. You see two stars, and if the seeing's good, you'll see a little central blob surrounded by some circular rings. It's called an airy disk, and you see these two overlapping airy disks. And it's a lovely sight to see, actually, and I would recommend it if you have got a small telescope. Easy to find, find Saturn, and then up a bit to the, to the right to find Porima. Um, the rings this year, actually, of Saturn have been uh, getting slightly narrower in angle. It's because of the changing motion of the Earth around the Sun. But they're now opening out again and will continue to do so. So when we see Saturn again in its next apparition, we'll see gradually more and more of the rings visible. And some of the features, like Cassini's division, will be easier to see. I mentioned the Summer Triangle. Um, there are two things, I think, just to look out for binoculars or possibly a small telescope will help. Um, if you follow from Altair up to Vega, about a third of the way, you'll come across a little asterism called Brocky's Cluster, or the Kotanger, because it looks just like a little Kotanger upside down. If you go to the Night Sky website, just put Night Sky into Google, then you'll find a little map showing you precisely where it is. But if you go up to the left from Brocky's cluster, you'll come to the star called Albirio. It actually makes the head of Cygnus the Swan. It's not nearly as bright as the other stars, really, that make up the main part of Cygnus, of which the major form what's called the Northern Cross. So, in fact, Albirio forms the, the base of the cross. If you have got a small telescope, it's well worth looking at it because it's a most beautiful double star. One is much brighter than the other, I think third magnitude and then fifth, but it has a beautiful amber, sort of orangey colour, whereas the other is blue-green. And it's probably the most beautiful double star that we can observe in the sky. So do try and have a look. Dawn, July the 27th, towards the end, I sometimes try and indicate what might be a nice skyscape. There'll be a very thin crescent moon with Jupiter and Mars in the pre-dawn sky. So you have to look east-south-east about 40 minutes before sunrise. And uh, that may be nice. Hopefully it'll be clear. You'll also spot, in the same field, the Pleiades cluster above and the Hyades cluster, which will be just above to the right of Mars. So that'll be a nice thing to look at if it's clear. Finally, um, around the summer solstice, and we've just gone through that, it's a very good time to spot what are called noctilucent clouds. They're also known as polar mesopheric clouds. And you see them in the north in the deep twilight. The point is that when you're at this sort of latitude, or preferably even further north, the sun doesn't get that low above the northern horizon, and its light can actually light up these incredibly high clouds. They're about 80 kilometres or 50 miles high. Normally, they're too faint to be seen, but they're visible when illuminated by sunlight from below the northern horizon. So that's something to look out for. They're not fully understood. They seem to be more common now than they were, and nobody quite knows why. Some people think it might be due to climate change. So that's something. If you've got a clear night and you're up at around midnight, look to the north and see if you have see some slightly blue scattered clouds. Have a good month. <laughs>
Thanks for that, Ian. And now we move on to our feedback section. So I'm not in Manchester. I was a couple of weeks ago for the lunar eclipse. But Jen, have we got anything in the post bag? We have, but it's a postcard from a jogcaster. So Mark is off on holiday, and he sent us a postcard from Brazov in Romania. Hmm. It's a very strange postcard of the council square and the old town hall, but it seems to have a hot air balloon in it. It's a very jaunty angle. It's taken from the air, and he says. I'm going to read this out and then you're going to have to do it properly. He says, Dear Jogcasters, brackets, Dracula voice, greetings from Transylvania. So you're going to have to do that in a Dracula voice now. <laughs> uh, only if you put some um, echo on it. I will oh, try please. my hardest. Okay. Greetings from Transylvania. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. He says, you're hope you're working hard on the July episode. Give me a shout out as I'm on holiday. It's hot. So oh. there we go. Thank you, Mark, from for here. your postcard. Yay, thank you. And we, much as we don't mind postcards from Jodcasters, it would be quite nice to get a postcard from so, normal listeners. <laughs> I say normal listeners. Normal. Um, well, you're, you're, you, you, um, okay. <clears throat> Shutting up now. Okay. Moving on to the forum. Uh, we've had a comment, well, more than a comment, uh, on the June 2011 extra show. And this is from Coconino. And he says, the Soyuz isn't so much a supply ship as a transport craft. Station resupplies done by the progress craft, which is similar to the Soyuz, but unmanned. Uh, you also mentioned that it's an unusual situation as two spacecraft are not normally at the space station at the same time, which isn't actually the case. There is always at least one Soyuz duck docked with the station, whether or not a shuttle is visiting. Uh, I suppose that's because the Soyuz is a lifeboat. But um, he also gave us a couple of interesting shuttle factoids, and uh, so thank you very much for everything you put there. There's also some very interesting stuff uh, being debated including one thread that has caught my eye, which is entitled, Has the Jodcast Encouraged You to Do New Things? And I'd like to say hi to Ink Smithy, Mike K, and Grandad Jeff, because they're all new people on the forum. So hello, and if you're not on the forum, then you should head over to the forum and sign up, because it's really fun, and we like getting your feedback on there. Absolutely. And Facebook has even had some, uh, some traffic as well. Yay! Alfred de Jong... Got introduced, to the, got introduced to the Jodcast a few weeks ago. Uh, since then, I listened to the podcasts of 2011, and you're a great team. Woo. So well done. Lots of interesting stuff. And uh, Trevor, too good as well. So if you're on Facebook, do look us up and uh, give us a like and, uh, and leave us a comment. We've had tweets from Reesey Pie, from Physics Chris, Cash Farouk, and Salvaria. Lala. Um, yeah, so Cash uh, tweeted at us the other day saying, why has no one told me about the Jogcast before? It's very good. And we got into a bit of a dialogue with him, and it turns out that he's been listening to the Night Sky segment for years, but didn't actually realise that there was an entire podcast associated with it. Oh, <laughs> Which, wow. So I think we're going to have to um, change the segment voices in the future. Mm-hmm. Yes. And if you do want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. 
On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. Or you can send us real post. The address is on the website. I don't read it out because I know what happened last time. <laughs> you can hear a clip of Dave <laughs> failing to say the postcode for Jodrell Bank on the um, April was... 1990 April 4th edition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was rather amusing. <laughs> Oh dear, yes. <laughs> the days. Uh, so, that brings this issue of the Jodcast to an end. Hopefully I'll be on again before next July. Yeah, I've missed you, Dave. I've missed being on it, actually, to be, to be honest. It, it was really good to come up for the, um, for the uh, Lunar Eclipse event up at Mosey. That was really good fun. I got to see all of the Jodcast crew again. Yay. And uh, it was also great to have you over in Nottingham yesterday. Oh, it's been a good month. Yes. And our thanks, therefore, go to Giovanni Tinetti for the interview, to Chris Lintot for the intro-outro. He's been in our intro-outros before, but... But he's now our celebrity intro-outro. Yes. We don't have any Uh, more celebrities, so if you're a celebrity and you listen to the Jobcast, can you get in touch? Because we're (laughs) out of them now. (laughs) Well, of course, if you uh, do want a uh, a former uh, British Prime Minister, um, one can be arranged... (laughs) Or indeed, if you want to hear from the Foreign Secretary, I think he can also be persuaded to tell you how his astronomy knowledge has come from the Jodcast. Dave? Yes? Continue. The editors were Jen Gupta, as has just been shown, Megan Argo and Melanie Gendre, and the producer was Jen Gupta, because she really doesn't take any silliness. No. no. So until next time, thank you very much for having me and Jod on. Bye, everyone. Bye bye. Bye. This is Chris Lintot, and I'm classifying this episode of the Jogcast as an irregular with just a hint of a bulge at the centre. <laughs> <laughs>